Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. So today we're talking about the recent return to running postnatal guidelines for medical health and fitness professionals that came out in March 2019. That was by Tom Goom, Gronya Donnelly, and Emma Brockwell. If you haven't read these guidelines yet, they are excellent. We're talking about them in today's episode. There'll be a link where you can sign up to get the free guideline as well as um, be on their mailing list because they will keep these guidelines up to date. Now, if you don't know who Tom Goom is, he's the clinical lead at the Physio Rooms and a specialist in the management of running injury. He's known as at Tom Goom on Twitter, um, but he's published research on tendinopathy. He presents in the UK and internationally on a number of running-related topics. His website is running-physio.com and has gained a worldwide audience with over 6 million page views. He's the male voice in this podcast, so not hard to tell who is who. Gronya Donnelly is an advanced physiotherapist and team lead for pelvic health physiotherapy in both NHS and private sector in Northern Ireland. So she is the one with the, with the Irish accent. So hopefully you guys can hear that. It's beautiful. She's a full member of Pelvic Obstetric and Gynecological Physiotherapy and is currently completing a master's in advancing practice. She's the co-founder of Spark Cancer Rehabilitation, a non-profit cancer rehabilitation service in Northern Ireland. She's passionate about improving the quality and consistency of information to guide women back to normal life after having a baby. And on Twitter, she is known as at ABS physio. Now Emma Brockwell is a women's health physiotherapist. She is in Surrey in London. She has an English accent so you should be able to tell who she is. Now when I was um, before I'd ever come to Australia I couldn't tell the difference between Irish, English, Australian, Kiwi, South African. Um, So hopefully you guys can tell the difference. Um, But anyway, Emma specializes in postnatal rehabilitation, is passionate that all women return to postnatal exercise safely and effectively. She actively campaigns for improvements in women's health care, co-founding Pelvic Roar, a pelvic health campaign group in which there has been a podcast previously on the Pelvic Health podcast about Pelvic Roar. She has written for Women's Running and Women's Health magazine and runs her own Walk Run Club, aimed at educating and encouraging women of all ages to walk and run without pelvic floor dysfunction. On Twitter, she is known as at Emma underscore physio mum, which is M-U-M. Thank you guys so much again for taking time out to come and chat on the podcast about the um, postnatal running guidelines. So um, we're just going to get straight into it. So you three have put together this brilliant postnatal return to running guidelines um, relatively recently. So I thought we could just start with, um, you know, was it one person's idea? What kind of brought all of you guys together to decide to do something like this? From where it sort of commenced was um, my husband actually attended Tom's uh, running repairs course 
and had come back. I think he must have had a conversation with you on that, um, Tom, about pelvic health physio and MSK physio. And from that, Tom and I got chatting and we decided that there was a huge need to put good quality advice out there and to bridge the gap between musculoskeletal sports physio and pelvic health physio. And we obviously, I always had followed Emma Brockwell on um, social media, so we hadn't met in person at this stage. Ah. And Tom knew Emma as well. And so we decided that she was ideal to get on board as well. So Tom, maybe am I correct in how that all commenced? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, we met in uh, on the course in Dublin, um, and then as you say, I got got chatting to your your other half, and it um, kind of went from there, didn't it? We we had a really good chat on uh, over Skype, and I think we shared lots of similar sort of ideas and things. And then, um, as you say, both of us very fortunate to know Emma, and we think we've made a good team since then. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sounding really awesome with those guys saying it like that. I think the reality <laughs> is that um, I went on Tom's running repair course, which was just amazing, and probably stalked him a little bit in a very non, um, in a very physio stalking fashion, um, and um, followed Gronya actually on um, Instagram and Twitter, and I think. Gronje dropped me a message about running and uh, return to running postnatally. And yeah, I, I basically sort of begged to be part of it because I just thought I, I've always been really passionate about that subject and pairing up with these two is just awesome. So yeah, it was, a, it was a stalking project and it worked. <laughs> well, <laughs> So, Tom, we know that um, you are a runner. Um, you're known, I think, as the running physio. Is that correct? Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. uh, through the years of kind of combined the uh, the love for running and the passion for physio together, uh, and specialised in in running injury. So, was there anything specific that kind of piqued your interest into? looking at women who are postnatal runners do you see them as well and you knew that there is a need for this yeah there's um i think there's been a, a need for a long time and and actually i've chatted to quite a few um physios who have often you know, said you know what about um for women who want to return to running after after pregnancy how can we help them so i know there's been a need for quite a while and I think as well, sometimes there's a bit of a focus on what not to do. Mm. And I think it's really good to try and produce um, some kind of guidance on what people can do, you know, mm. what, what people can get back into. Um, so, you know, I think there's been a need for a while. But also from my point of view, I, on my own, I don't I don't have the expertise to guide people because um, I don't have that specialism in women's health. Um, and I think that's where, you know, I feel very fortunate to to have teamed up with Emma and Gronje on this because we, I think between the three of us, hopefully we've got a nice holistic approach uh, to return to running for women. I think, Emma, you said you were a runner as well. Mm. Yeah, so I've run since I can remember, really. And I had, I mean, my, my, my journey has been a little bit more personal, I think, in that I um, had very difficult pregnancies. I was very ill during my pregnancies and couldn't run during them. And then once I'd had babies, because I had difficult deliveries as well, I just felt, um, I felt a bit lost, actually. I didn't really know um, where to begin with my return to run, uh, partly because I was an MSK physio at the time. And um, I was researching and I just felt there was just so much, so much conflicting 
information out there um, amongst healthcare professionals and running coaches and fitness professionals. Um, and that level of frustration took me into the world of women's health physio. And then it's just that that frustration increased for me because every patient I was seeing was saying, when can I return to running? You know, the doctor is saying it's okay. I've had my six week check. And I just felt that something needed, there needed to be some more general, general, general consensus on the subject. Um, it's not a one size fits all by any means, but it, it hopefully allows for a level of guidance that just wasn't there before with some evidence. Um, so uh, yeah, for me, it was, I guess, a personal journey that turned into something more uh, along the way. And Grania, you're a runner as well. Well, I would call myself at this stage a runner in my former life. So I would have ran, <laughs> um, would have ran growing up, would have been very active and would have been a long distance runner. However, I suppose since getting into more adulthood and having children, I've had, um, I've had, I've I've currently three kids, four and under, and I'm due my fourth in August. So I've been pregnant wow, for a, a lot of the last. Thank you. Um, so I haven't been doing as much running, but I treat a lot of postnatal women and same idea as what Emma and Tom are saying. Um, all is getting asked when safe to return. Really frustrated by the conflicting advice, particularly um, everything that exists around the six week milestone. It seems to be in the UK um, and Ireland that automatically once people wake up on the morning of being six weeks postnatal that they're automatically ready for exercise so it was just to get some more thought behind it and some more awareness of what we're assessing why we're assessing and what to do about it you guys develop these guidelines for professionals right like this isn't I mean the public can read it it's free access to everybody but it was designed for GPs health professionals in order to understand the literature behind it as well as kind of how to assess and go about it is that right yeah absolutely so we wanted to make sure that women can access it themselves and health and fitness professionals because we wanted everybody who deals with the postnatal population to be I suppose singing of the same hymn sheet and to have the same evidence-based information however um, it was mainly directed and it commenced in terms of targeting health professionals and any sort of medical health professionals GPs and physios both musculoskeletal and pelvic health. Yeah, and did you find that there wasn't a lot of research to back what you want to tell people? Yes, that's very accurate. It's a tricky area in um, in running in general, really, actually. There's surprisingly little high-quality research to guide the return to running process after injury. Um, and even less when you look at very specific populations like, um, you know, postpartum women. So it, that's part of the reason why I think a lot of people feel a bit lost because there, is, there isn't really this great deal of literature to guide us. Um, so we, we looked at what was out there, but obviously, but also tried to combine that with, you know, our reasoning processes and our experience and trying to, to work out, you know, how we can combine all that together to, to give the best guidelines that are available now, but obviously then we can update them as, as new evidence emerges. Do you think that's why things like this haven't happened is because there's not a lot of evidence behind it and then we're worried about putting something together like this because it is a lot of, okay, well, these are also my, you know, this is my clinical experience as well as some of the literature and you have to play with it a little bit? 
Yes, I do think uh, that's half the battle. It's taken us or good seven or eight months actually to put these together um and that's partly because we've been doing it in our free time um but finding the evidence that really isn't there and trying to extrapolate the key messages from the evidence that does exist has been tricky and a lot i guess our slight concern with with the guidelines was that a lot of it was expert um opinion consensus opinion rather than than um evidence-based opinion um but we also felt that someone had to start the ball rolling. Um, and we hold our hands up. These aren't finished products. These are certainly not, um, uh, we, we aren't suggesting that they're, 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 they're strongly evidence-based, but they're as good as they can get for now. And we're hoping that it gets the conversation started and starts attracting researchers into the area. Um, and that would just be that would be incredible just to have more research on the subject. Can you, um, are you able to talk through some of the key point summaries that you discuss in the paper or some of the kind of main messages that you found by looking at the literature and that you're really wanting to get across to people? Two key points from the guidelines are that we feel every woman who's had a baby should have access to to a pelvic health assessment after they've had a baby. Uh, In the UK, that's just uh, not a reality at the moment. Um, And we have had some new NHS uh, plans uh, released, which over the next 10 years have uh, suggested that all women who have had a baby will have a pelvic health assessment. Whether that will happen in that timescale, I'm not sure, but until it does, Um, We're hoping that every clinician that works with the postnatal population will at least scream for pelvic floor dysfunction. And if anything is flagging up, then they refer to a pelvic health physio for a full evaluation of pelvic floor um, and assessment, obviously, uh, of pelvic organ prolapse and lack of hiatal support. Then that's where we really want to bring in our other key point which is collaboration and considering the considering the woman holistically um and so if a pelvic health physio hasn't got the msk skills then they would collaborate with their msk physio um, to evaluate load management and assess strength of key muscle groups putting all those tests together um, and considering other uh, factors um, that we mention and go into detail with within the guidelines like sleep, uh, diastasis, um, weight. Um, there's there's a whole host of other factors. Um, we're hoping that that provides a holistic picture to then guide the clinician to formulate a prescribed rehab program. Uh, from there, the prescribed if the, if the woman is uh, 12 weeks postnatal. Um, and has passed the variety of tests that we've we've listed in the guidelines. That's when we suggest that uh, a woman can should potentially uh, return to a graded form of of running. And from that, or within that graded return to run, we should be monitoring monitoring their response to running, uh, perhaps involving running coaches. And if conservative measures aren't working and pelvic floor dysfunction is becoming an issue still, potentially involving the Eurogynes um, again. So it's it's a flowchart. It's a constant uh, f- feedback system where we where we're working with patient, where we're working with other clinicians. And I think I've I think that's I think that's pretty much the key point summed up. Can I ask? Um, and I know I have a feeling what the answer will be. 
But how, because one of your main um, things that you discuss is that um, they shouldn't return to running until they're at least three months postnatal. So how come you've chosen three months? Again, this has been extrapolated from what the research or the limit of research does tell us. But when we looked at some of the research in terms of what happens during particularly vaginal deliveries, um, we know that the uh, hiatal area stretches and the perineum stretches a certain amount. And it's been reported in the literature that the recovery of this um, doesn't really, um, I suppose, maximize until four to six months postnatal. Mm. So far beyond the six week postnatal check. Yeah. And also when we consider um, cesarean section delivery, we know that um, when we look, when there's research is looked into abdominal surgeries, that they have reported that by, uh, was it, I'm trying to think how many weeks postnatal, it was six by six weeks postnatal, mm. there's only just over 50% of the tensile strength has returned. So again, we're starting to consider the healing process. And the key issue, which again, there's a lack of specific research into this area, but the key issues that we find is that if you consider any other sporting area or injuries, we know that say Tom you'll be um, more keen in this but like we know that for ACL injuries or knee ligament injuries or anything like that people have a proper prescribed rehab program and proper progressive loading and they wouldn't be returned to play or returned to sport until they're ready but yet women have babies and our bodies are magnificent and they do wonderful things and they are designed for this but I think in the modern world we live in and with the pressures of social media and mm. that idea to snap back, there is huge um, pressure and a, there's a huge rush on women jumping back into very high impact sport too soon and too soon for what their body's ready for. So, Tom, can you talk me through, you guys in the guidelines have um, touched on some really neat things with regards to load and impact and strength testing and screening. Um, so what do you, Tom, what do you generally look for with regards to, um, like the, I think you've got in here, looking at video analysis for load and impact screening. Are there specific things that you want people to be able to do or that you look for before you decide that they're ready from a Musk point of view? Um, yes, I think, um, um, you know, uh, Emma and Gronje have summarized it really, really well. Mm. And um, one of the things I'm thinking about is a, as a kind of, you know, broad broad idea is this idea of, of readiness to run and, and incorporating the things that, that Emma's touched on there, obviously the time scales, understanding if there are, are key risk factors or actual contraindications to returning to running, because that's you know that's important. If there are clear contraindications, then those need to be addressed first. But but then what we're trying to do is is get an idea from subjective and objective assessment of what we would broadly call load tolerance so for example generally for people to to manage running they often want to be quite comfortable with everyday things and a simple test we like to ask is you know can you walk comfortably for 30 minutes mm. um, to see because if, you, if you're struggling and you're getting some symptoms uh, of pain um, or other issues even with walking then that transition up to the impact of running is obviously going to be challenging so they often start that process by asking you know, how everyday things how are walking how are, how are those activities do they cause you any issues um, and then we start to to test objectively um, to see if we can challenge people and see what they can manage so we get we start with the easiest tests obviously um, so we might start with some static balance tests 
um, and look, simply looking at you know single leg balance for 10 seconds then going on to things like single leg squat to assess their control through the uh, the trunk the pelvis and and down through the femur and if they're managing those well then we can go on to, to using some light impact um, and you know during these these tests again we're progressively taking it up a level to see how people cope you know if people get some you know symptoms um you know that uh, that might be you know signs of um issues with their pelvic health etc um heaviness dragging you know incontinence etc those also would be things we'd flag up during these tests as mm. something that we need to deal with so we might start with jogging on the spot typically for about a minute and if that's manageable we might go on to things like uh, bounding which is essentially jumping forward from one leg to another and then going on to to potentially things like hopping now the, the most important thing from my point of view isn't necessarily exactly the exact technique because that actually varies a, a great deal in uh, in people anyway but it's the symptomatic response that's probably more important. Mm, yeah. You know, can, can, a, can a woman comfortably jog on the spot with, for a minute without any issues? Great. If the technique isn't 100% perfect, I'm probably less concerned. Um, but if you want to look at the technique, that's where the video comes in. And there's a number of apps for that um, that we use. My, my uh, preferred one is something called Huddle Technique which allows you to video uh, someone doing something and then look at it in slow motion. So if you do want to really examine, say, their hopping control and address that, you can do it by having a look at that a bit more slowly, um, which is fine to do. But as I said, the symptom response is probably more important. Um, but these are these are essentially, in a way, they're kind of surrogate measures. The, the only way to know if someone can tolerate running is by actually at some point asking them to run Um, and that would be you know once once we have established that you know there aren't risk factors or the right time scale um, they've they've passed all the appropriate tests we'd often then start with a very short run to see you know and we might be looking at two or three minutes on the treadmill or something as a starting point to actually see how they respond to that and whether we can build on it. And if if people don't have a treadmill, do you often just get them to go for a little run outside to test it out and see if they're having any symptoms? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't think it matters too much whether it's treadmill or outside. Uh, it comes down to what you've got available, what the, and what the patient's personal preference is, really. Um, but is it? I think. We can be tempted as health professionals sometimes to have a kind of, you know, kind of a one test. Oh, you mm. passed this test, therefore yeah. you can run. But it's about this whole concept of readiness to run. It's looking at the whole bigger picture um, and, and looking at the individual need. Um, and that's the other thing that we're hoping this assessment process allows us to do is to identify each individual's need. You know, do they have some needs around strengthening around the, the trunk and pelvis, for example? Um, do they have needs in terms of, of uh, perhaps some guidance on improving their sleep if we feel that's a real issue for them? You know, uh, do they have needs around continence? You know, so hopefully this can be very much tailored to the individual and it gives us an opportunity to identify their needs and then go on to address them with them. I love that you brought up sleep because I think that, (laughs) you know, often it is lacking, but nobody seems to discuss it as a part of their return to exercise or sport as being a factor. So like Emma or Gronje, can you touch on, you know, why you decided that you needed to put sleep in there? Because we never get any and we're mums. (laughs) So you knew. And we know all about it. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> we know, and particularly if we start to consider even um, like the likes of like relative energy deficiency in sport and other, um, I suppose, risk factors that uh, women have, we know that men are also at risk of it too, but um, particularly women. And if we think of the postnatal population who aren't maybe getting the sleep that they are accustomed to or that they require and that potentially combined with that aren't eating as well um, and are eating on the go and putting everyone else first. We know that these women may be expending more energy than they are, I suppose, producing or that they're um, recovering with. So it puts them at high risk. And sleep has a huge effect on our bodily systems. So it has to be an important consideration and it needs to be considered. And even women need to be educated regarding its role, as well as clinicians picking up on it. Because if the woman doesn't understand the importance of sleep and how it can affect uh, her even the likes of her return to running and return to sport well then she's not going to engage in the practice of getting more sleep or the prioritization of it so how do you make somebody get more sleep when they have a new baby i know it is so <laughs> tough it is it, i totally get that and it is tough but it's more just bringing that awareness that it is a, a priority so that any measures that can be taken you know what i mean so it may be people always say when you have a baby nap when the baby naps and that's one of the things I really struggled with at the beginning mm. because when the baby napped, I was like, I have a million things to do. Yeah. But it kind of then becomes, if you understand a bit more about why sleep's important, you can prioritize that and let the laundry wait and let, you know, let the house not be completely tidy. And so it's just, um, I suppose it's giving people the key information as to what all the factors are and why they're important. Well, and I like that too, because with regards to that three month um, time point that you're talking about, like you may feel in those first three months after you have a baby, you're not sleeping very much, but you still may feel really good. Like those, it's that little trick in the first three months because you're, you got mm-hmm. this new focus that you don't realize what the lack of sleep is, is doing to you. So explaining to people, like you said, from a kind of biomechanical or physiological point of view, how it's affecting their body, even though they may feel really good right now, <laughs> it's affecting you this way. So therefore, you may want to wait a little bit. Absolutely. I think that's a, a good point as well, because, you know, I, I think I, that I can really hear what um, you guys are saying here. And I know it too from when our little one was born, Woody was, uh, he was uh, 10 weeks premature. And uh, when he came out of hospital, um, he was still, still very, you know, very small. He still, he struggled to keep any feeds down um, and he would sleep for 15 minutes at a time. And that was it. Wow. um, And, uh, you know, so you can imagine, uh, you know, uh, us going to see a physio at that stage and them saying, do you know what you need is more sleep? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And us being like, you don't say. I mean, we haven't thought of that. Um, But I suppose one of the things that we can change sometimes when, when other things, you know, when there are other things we can't change is our expectations on ourselves. Yeah. So, so sometimes we can be really, really tough on ourselves with our expectations and we don't adjust our expectations when there's actually some really serious things going on in our lives. So we still expect that we're going to get back to, to, to everything at a, a really early time scale, even though we're massively sleep deprived and we're really struggling with a, with a baby that you know won't sleep and things. So I, I think sometimes if people aren't able to adjust their sleep or there are other things going on, it's perhaps seeing if can they adjust their expectations of themselves. Can, be maybe a little bit more compassionate and kind to themselves and allow themselves a bit more time, you know, to get back to those things that they value, I think. 
Yeah, I think you're spot on, Tom. And actually, the part of uh, that that I often use now with my ladies is just saying to them, I can't help you find more sleep. But what I can suggest to you is if you're shattered, find another form of exercise to do that day. So just go for a nice long walk. Um, It doesn't have to be that day that you impact um, and you hopefully will decrease your risk of injury as well. Um, And sometimes it's giving someone that acknowledgement and saying it's okay not to do what you think you should be doing, which again just comes back to your comment, Tom, about expectations and, and helping someone manage them. I love how within that and within your guidelines, um, you gave people examples of things that they can do within those, even the first six weeks. Um, Do you plan on expanding on that a little bit more? Or what are your plans from, you know, with this guidelines? Because you you said like, this is a start and it's a start of a conversation. So what do you want to do now? We've talked about this a couple of times, actually, and um, because one of the things that people have commented on is that appendix two, that they've really yeah. enjoyed that example of what can be done, as Tom says, rather than all is here and what they can't do. It's what can they do in those weeks. But one of the things people have asked for is more variety and more suggestions. So yeah. we very much did that as an example of, of um, the type and level of exercises at each stage that progress through um I suppose hoping that people could apply it and to the types of exercise that they like that are similar or equivalent in terms of load but I think people like to have suggestions and so I think that's certainly an area we would expand on um and try to come up with um maybe a variety so that you're hitting the interests of all people um at each stage yeah, and look, you know, you guys would know as well as I do that physios and probably other health professionals really like protocols. <laughs> they want you to tell them Absolutely. exactly what you should exactly. be doing week zero to two, week two to four, yeah. the way you've broken it down. So I actually like that it's it's kind of general and broad, but um, I can see why people would want some more um, variety and and ideas within that that time frame. I think it would be really wonderful to to hear back from clinicians um one you know with with the case examples of how you know they've they found the guidelines and and maybe hearing some you know examples of of how they were implemented successfully and, and maybe to some degree also when they they weren't as successful because it would be really good to develop a little bank of like successful um examples of, of women following these guidelines and coming back in and maybe equally a little selection of ones where you know they needed a bit more guidance or perhaps there's things we could improve on because in the absence of the evidence there you know if we're hearing of 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 real people getting back using these guidelines to what they want to do you know that isn't obviously the same as published evidence but at least Mm. it gives us something to know okay out there in the real world are real women coming back from from pregnancy are actually finding this useful to to get back to running and and other things they want to do I like how open you are to that because you think of some of the published guidelines that are out there. Maybe they're open to it, but I, I've never thought about um, writing to the IOC <laughs> and going, hey, regarding your guidelines, I have some extra ideas I think you should add to it. That would be, uh, yeah, I don't know how well that would go over. Um, so what do you what do you want to do from, like, from a publishing point of view and from a, you know, um, academic or any kind of backing to this guideline is there plans to to go that route 
We're hoping uh, to uh, to write, uh, get a blog out for the BJ, BJSM. Yeah. Um, Are you allowed to say any of this? Process? Or do you want me to Ooh. not include that? Um, um, we're currently actually, we've already been asked to do it. So that's absolutely fine. We've already oh. been asked to do a blog for the BJSM. So that's, I've sent a, it's a draft, it's in draft stage at the minute. So we're finalizing that between the three of us. Yeah. So that'll be really interesting. Yeah. And then we're also hoping that our chartered society, the professional body, are looking to uh, gather some information, particularly in terms of a case, um, a case study usage of these guidelines. Isn't that right, Emily? Or isn't that right? Sorry, Emma. <laughs> yes. My daughter's called Emily. Sorry, <laughs> Emily. that's a real brain fart. Um, yes, the CSP are going to publish in their frontline, and they're going to put it out to press as well, um, and try and uh, get it out to some GP magazines as well. Um, so that's that's all in all all in um the pre- all, sort of all happening at the moment um and we're hoping to potentially take uh the guidelines to any other conferences that might be applicable um perhaps in an abstract form um but it's all quite quite a lot of the plans are, are slightly up in the air really at the moment well, does it feel like this is kind of, I know you've been working on it for seven to eight months, but the response to it, has it been what you expected or a lot more? A lot more, I would say. I knew that they were needed, but the interest, particularly in social media, has been massive with people, as the weeks have gone on, are still doing like uh, infographics and stories and they're nearly extrapolating key messages from our guidelines and doing posts and putting it out there to their populations. Um, so it's really exciting to see that. And we're even getting feedback um, from some health and fitness professionals as they use them. They're briefly sending messages through to us to say, thanks so much for these guidelines. You know, we're putting them into practice. They're making such a difference and they're giving us a focus. So that's a good uh, part of it. But um, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, but um, I'm just wondering as well whether there's... Um... Uh, you know, is there any way that we that there's a an outcome measure that could come out of it in terms of because that would be something quite quite good from an in evidence point of view. You know what? Um, uh, for for example, it could include things that look at you know continents. It could include things that look at um, you know return to running in terms of a target distance, in terms of a time, symptoms, and stuff like that. Because that would be quite helpful to be able to find a way of measuring a successful return to to sport. I expect that's that because that's the difficult thing, isn't it? So how how do you measure how successful the guideline is, really? But I suppose that might be something you know a project in the future, or you know there may be aspects of the guideline that that those involved directly in research may go off and research certain parts of it, which would be a, again a really good outcome, I think, from this if if it leads to more research in certain areas. So are you calling on people to contact you if they're interested in that? <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to ask. I, well, the honest answer is I'd have to ask my wife first because the last time I did a published research paper was coincidentally um, where it was actually just just before Woody was born. Um, oh, wow. We got Woody was born on the 20th of March and we got our reject and resubmit submit letter on the 21st of March. Oh. So, 
We were then given eight weeks to rewrite the whole paper oh with my a, goodness. A, a newborn in, in special care baby unit. So my wife made me promise that I never do another research paper again after that. So I was literally <laughs> writing the paper and, um, you know, bottle feeding Woody at like three in the morning um, oh, wow. and then oh, going wow. off to clinic to do the work. Um, so, you know, so that's that's the thing. Um, it. The, um, part of the issue with with the research is it, it's massively massively time consuming and yeah. and I think the the difficult thing with with the guideline of, of this size to try and get it all through is I, I know from personal experience is that virtually every line they want evidence for um, when you're submitting to a high quality journal and I think yeah. that's the problem at the minute we wouldn't necessarily have the evidence to be able to do that I think um, plus I don't think my wife would let me so <laughs> So is that also, again, why you've published the guidelines, the the way that you have put them out there as free access to people with as much kind of support and evidence as you could put together, but not gone down that publication route because of the difficulties associated with it? I, th- I think just I think just to some degree and we, we you know we had that that conversation and we you know I think we would love to be able to to create something that could could be published but it's I think first and foremost we wanted to get some guidelines out there to people I think do, yeah. do, you, do you guys agree with that Emma and Gwanya? Yeah and I think yeah, as you mentioned it was to do with the access to because yeah. mm-hmm. some so say some um say some of our specialist bodies and things you have to be a member of that journal to access it so then you're limiting who's going to look for it so my husband for example is a musculoskeletal sports physio and he's not going to look into my women's health and pelvic health kind of journal specialist no. interest areas unless there's something specific he knows is in it so we wanted to put it because we're trying to get people who typically may not consider pelvic health as part of their remit or something that they're interested in in the box it off as someone else's responsibility. We're trying to get people to consider aspects. So we needed to make sure that it was out there for people to access easily. But also um, what I've had comments back from a couple of the musculoskeletal staff in my health trust is that it's really good to have a document that has the MSK component but also the pelvic health component in one place rather than two separate documents focusing on each speciality so they were quite um, happy with that yeah no I love how you put with the objective measures how you don't just have from a musk or you don't just have pelvic floor objective measures um, and it and even those objective measures for pelvic floor it's written in a way that if you are a musk physio and that's not your specialty it's still um, easy to read and understanding and it's not taking up the whole paper there's a really good combination like you said coming kind of from both those sides and I love that it is the free access and available to everyone because yet once you do publish it, you lose some of that accessibility. And um, at least from what I gather in the little research bubble that I've found myself in, um, <laughs> that you know they're they're looking more at the impact of what you produce as almost as much meaningful and maybe more than you know the publications that you put out there as well and I think this paper which you've already seen the impact that it has been having um, will continue to you know make a lot of impact in in both the worlds that you know we've all been trying to to combine and put Mm. together so yeah I'm extremely um, in awe of what you guys have done. Oh thank you so much that's so nice to hear that and especially from someone as um, as experienced and um, key in the field as yourself. Um, but what I was going to say is it'd be slightly 
biased, but I was talking to Emma about the fact that I'm going to apply, obviously use the guidelines in my own postnatal journey and hopefully track and record and, you know, follow it. So, yeah, so I just think it'd be a really good opportunity because this is my fourth delivery and I can't plan ahead. Hopefully it'll go smoothly. But again, every delivery risk factors for everything go up. So I'm not naive to that. And I know that it probably won't be uh, a a smooth journey, but that's ideal because I want to see how the guidelines fit in with that and kind of put it out there. Yeah. And so are you guys are, you're, you're adding things like you're continually updating it, are you not? And adding things that you feel that people um, may have discussed (laughs) that, that they want to throw in there or? (laughs) I think we're keeping a log of all the feedback that we've been getting. And I think in, um, in a year's time, I think once we put them out there, we had put so much work into it. I think we were all glad to put them out there and not 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 edit them again <laughs> for a while. Yeah, I mean, we were really lucky in having um, some really uh, key people uh, review them. The whole guideline went through quite a few um, ex- key experts, um, and that process. took a long time didn't it Gronya to go through everyone's feedback and try and make sure that everyone was happy and the reality is we couldn't make everyone happy um it's just impossible um but you know they're not they're not the end product and so we still you know desperately want people like yourselves to review them for us and um and and give us give us feedback because they are very much um a work in progress well, thank you for thinking that I know things. No, no pressure. <laughs> I'm just wondering, um, Gronya, do you know um, what the numbers are up to now in terms of how many people have uh, accessed the, uh, the guidelines? Yes, I looked at this today, actually. There's 2,879 um, actual wow. downloads of it, but there's 7,000. It's really confusing. There's 7,000 yeah. people have actually accessed the landing page. Um, so I don't know why people are multiple times accessing it but you know what I mean it's only you know but, oh but I see so that that will be that um yeah so 7,000 people have landed on the page um mm-hmm. so they would have checked out the page and of those uh, nearly 3,000 have actually gone on to input their details and download the file okay so okay. that's which is which is amazing I think can yeah. um, yeah. combined with because um I've been sharing it with with um my mailing list too i think we're we're probably closing on three and a half thousand people who have have, have downloaded the guide um and, which and there's uh, more than that really we... yeah how do you sorry, sorry, how do you keep track of the people who are downloading it who's emailed it to somebody else in pdf that form? we can't we yeah. actually can't keep track of that but i know of lots of that that's happened mm. so a lot of my friends have circulated to their to other physios just because they're like oh i have it you know it's, yeah. it's handier and you're okay so they've with done that, that. Oh yeah, okay. you can't place that. It was yeah. free access, and the only reason we did the um, the Lana page was it's not. Um, that's what I was going to say. It's not to put anyone off. I know what it's like trying to put in details into uh, forms. You kind of think, oh gosh, spam mail alert. But mm. it's not. There's going to be no spam alert uh, mail coming from them. It's just basically we wanted to get an idea of particularly the backgrounds that people are coming from, access them, whether it's the general public, whether it's physiotherapists, whether it's GPs, fitness professionals. Um, and what reason it was so everyone's putting in a reason to say whether it, if it's a if it's a postnatal mom they're usually writing in that they're postnatal mm. and they want to get back and running so it's it's really good because at the beginning 
uh, when they were downloading, I was seeing a lot of uh, pelvic health and musculoskeletal physios. Um, and I was kind of thinking we're missing fitness professionals and we're missing GPs and consultants, but now we're starting to see more of them come through, which is great. So we know we're starting to target the key professionals that we want. And of course, by by getting um, by getting it out there in that way, um, with the mailing list, is one of the key advantages is that if we we can ask people for feedback at some point, but but by just simply sending them out um, an email, but also if we update it. All those people, mm. you can very easily send the update to, and I think that was part of the the motivation mm-hmm. too. You know, to make it easy to, you know, if a year down the line we update it, so to, to say right, all these people, to send them an email with the new updated file, and you know, it's as easy as that to keep people in the loop, really. All right. So yes. even if people have the PDF, they should go, and they're not on the mailing list. They should go and put their name down on the mailing list. Absolutely. Yes, yep. please. Yeah, yes, please. <laughs> oh, well, is, so is there anything else that you want to um, tell anybody that might be listening about the guidelines or plans? Do you know what I want to get across was that one of the key driving forces behind the guideline was the fact that we all know as physiotherapists and health professionals that exercise, including the likes of running, is a public health priority because of all the health benefits that it has. We also know that pelvic health issues are one of the biggest barriers for women. Just to try and remember and, and ask people, actually, you know, mm. uh, you know, why why is running or whatever sport they want to get back into, why is it important to them? And to try and actually understand that, because I think for quite a lot of people, their their sport is a really big part of their life. It might be a big part of their social life. It might be a big part of their physical and mental well-being, which um which is really important and I, th- I think that's the thing if we can just try and touch upon why returning to to running or any sport is important i think then we can it helps us really connect with the patient and and it helps us to know where they're trying to get to which is really important to help them along the journey to get there i think so i think that's the other thing i just said it's just that kind of empathy and understanding of of why things are important yeah and i think it's a great question too because i've actually had quite a couple um, mothers, new moms, and I ask them why they want to get back to running, and they're like, "I actually hate running. I just thought it would be really mm. good for me." I'm like, "Well, let's find something you like, <laughs> because yeah. if you hate yeah. running, why are you doing it?" Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much for taking um, time out of your evening to um, to join me and discuss this, and I look forward to seeing what's going to come in the future. Thank you so much, Laurie. Yes, thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> Thank you. It's been it's been lovely to to um, you know meet you in this way as well, Laurie, and, and chat and things. It's been been really nice.